Missouri Governor Mike Parson now throwing money at you to get vaccinated. A shot at winning $10,000. This was supposed to be put your mask back on week, but did anyone listen? It's hard for us to mandate a thousand customers coming in on a Friday when the city isn't mandating. And are our schools reversing course? The CDC is not the law, neither is the Judge County Department of Health. Also this week, the tents are back, and a fight now on both sides of state line over what's taught about racism in our schools. Just because I do not want critical race theory taught to my children in school does not mean that I'm a racist, damn it. And marking three years as the duck boat disaster, now a new company wanting to bring back the attraction. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gourley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello everyone, I'm Nick Haynes. Our reporters are back this week as we dissect the most impactful, confusing and befuddling stories grabbing the headlines here in our metro, pouring through the week's top local stories. We're glad to have Mr. Up-to-Date, Steve Kraske with us from KC1 News, also on the big screen. The editor of the Call newspaper, Eric Wesson, from the pages of your Kansas City star, Dave Helling, and from 41 News reporter, Sarah Plake. I am assuming, Sarah, as you are our Olympic station, you are coming to us via... Tokyo, and that's probably one of the sports venues behind us, right? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, it's just a backdrop of Union Station. I wish. So <laughs> you're one, one of the few reporters at the station who has to stay here and try and cover the news for us, and we are appreciative. Right. All right. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> We've got so much to talk about this week. You know, everyone's uh, likes money, don't they? How about $10,000 in hard cash? That's what the governor of Missouri is now offering to get you vaccinated. The Missouri VIP campaign will give vaccinated Missourians a shot at winning $10,000. The ones that really are maybe on the bubble, maybe the ones are trying to figure out, do I or do I not, we want to encourage them to take that vaccine. And it's not just one prize of $10,000. How about $10,000 for 900 people? That's what's going to be given away between now and October. And perhaps just as significant, the state is giving local health departments the funds to give $25 in cash when you now come in for a jab. So is COVID about to end in Missouri, Steve Kraske? Uh, no, Nick. And you have to wonder how effective something like this is going to be, this VIP program that the governor is trotting out. Folks who have gone this far and have not gotten vaccinated, you wonder what it's going to take to get them through the door to get the jab. And I'm not convinced that 10,000 bucks is going to do it. It might encourage a few people. After all, you know, down in Springfield a few weeks ago, we talked on the show, they were giving away free beer. And that didn't convince very many people to come in the door. So I'm not sure about this one either. It's certainly better than what's happening in Wyandotte County, Sarah Plake, where they're giving away Sporting KC scarves to get you vaccinated. We, we've been talking a lot about vaccination saturation. How do you really get to the people who have decided in their head, it's not worth my time, I can't bother to go get vaccinated. And when you have so many people who are, um, you know, maybe don't have access or maybe working three different jobs, maybe getting a vaccine is, is more you know, further down on their list of things to worry about every day. How about that, Eric? You know, it's, people do like money. And even if you don't want just the $10,000 chance to win that prize, you know, having $25 in cash, if you go and get the job isn't that going to be attractive to some people no and and i tell you 
for those of us that got our vaccines early on, it's kind of a slap in the face because I would have liked to have action at that 10,000. But one of the- <laughs> You can still sign things, up. <laughs> uh, Samuel Rogers this week started going door to door in the black community around their uh, hospital area there to go door to door to get people to take the vaccine. So that, and that was something, know. Dave, uh, Dave Helling, that Mike Parson, the governor, wasn't keen on having federal health officials do. I am interested to know where the money is coming from for these $10,000 prizes times 900 plus $25 in cash. Did they have that money from the federal pandemic relief funds? Yes, there is some ability to offer incentives uh, provided by the federal government. It's not a lot of money, Nick. The big question, of course, is whether it will do anything to raise the rate in Missouri, particularly in rural areas. That's where the real challenge is. At some point, it isn't about the financial incentives. It's about resistance to the vaccine, fear of uh, health consequences, and just a stubborn anti-vaccine attitude that exists in some places. And it isn't clear to me how the governor or any governor can overcome that, particularly when Mike Parson is lukewarm at best about urging people to get the shot. So even if it was $50,000 going into people's pockets, they still wouldn't come then, Steve? No, I don't think so, Nick. Rex Archer was on Up to Date yesterday. He's the health director of Kansas City, Missouri, saying, uh, September is going to be Armageddon. It's going to be an awful month uh, because kids are going to back, go back to school without masks. They're going to catch it. Parents are going to have to stay home again. Nick, we're regressing. We're going backwards in time as opposed to moving forwards when it comes to this pandemic. Well, let's talk a little bit more then about masks. This was also, by the way, supposed to be put your mask back on week in our metro. 11 Kansas City area health departments teaming up to issue a joint advisory recommending unvaccinated residents wear face coverings. It wasn't the dramatic announcement we saw a year ago when every prominent leader gathered at Union Station. So did anyone listen this week? After all, this is just a recommendation, not a mandate. But if the situation is as bad as we are told, why are they not requiring it then, Eric? Is it because uh, people like Rex Archer and the, the health leaders in Johnson County and Wyandotte County don't have enough clout any longer? It was difficult to have them put a mask on in the first place. Then you let them take it off. Now you're telling them to put it back on again. I think people are just tired of it. You know, I've gone into several grocery stores and even clerks in the grocery stores now aren't wearing masks. So I think getting people to put a mask back on is going to take something extraordinary uh, as far as getting people to communicate that this thing is serious again. We had actually Rex Archer on this program last week and all of those other health directors, and they said they weren't hatching any plans behind the scenes right now for any new business restrictions, for any new mask mandates. Is that impossible at this point then, Dave? Impossible is a strong word, but the idea that the government can force a widespread use of masks, or by the way, that school districts can do that or go back to remote learning, very, very tough uh, political. Now, as we record this program, the state of Kansas now working on a new statewide advisory recommending mask wearing, and it's also putting pressure on our schools, as Steve Kraske mentioned, the head of public health in Johnson County was on the program last week, now calling on school superintendents to reverse course and require masks in the classroom. But is it changing any minds? This is from the Blue Valley School Board meeting this week. The CDC is not the law, neither is the Johnson County Department of Health. I just don't see, I'm not a doctor, I'm an engineer, how a soiled, brown, black, wet mask 
on all day, every day for a young child is an improvement in public health. The naysayers winning the day in the Blue Valley School District. In fact, every school district in Johnson County holding firm. No masks, Sarah, except for Shawnee Mission, which will decide this on Monday. Right, and also uh, Kansas City, Kansas, they're going to require masks um, for all the students, staff, parents, and visitors in the 2021-22 school year. Yeah, so Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri are the only ones at this point then saying you're going to need to wear masks. What, what, what is the difference there? Is it because, uh, Eric, that they don't have the parents calling night and day, calling the school board members there saying we don't want to wear masks? No, I hate to say this, but it kind of looks like a Democratic area versus a Republican area. Uh, I'm interested to see what Raytown School District is going to do. Uh, my kids are in that school district. Uh, so I definitely have a vested interest in it. But my kids went to summer school and they had to wear masks during school, all during class, and they had to wear a mask to get on the school bus. So I think some school districts are still taking it very seriously. Yeah, and we should throw in, Nick, and this is important to note, that Wyandotte County has one of the lowest vaccination rates uh, in the state of Kansas. You know, we talk about rural areas struggling, but some urban areas too, and the last time I looked, I want to say 35% of Wyandotte County is fully vaccinated, at least for those eligible. And remember, the other thing to keep in mind is kids ages 5 through 12 are not eligible for the vaccine. None of the kids that would be, in essence, in grade school can get a shot. So that's playing into some of this discussion as well. Now, before we move on, perhaps the biggest local COVID story of the week was playing out a half a world away in Tokyo, where Kansas City area gymnast uh, Kaura Aika became the first U.S. Olympic athlete to test positive for COVID-19. Sarah, this is an athlete who was fully vaccinated, right, and subjected to vigorous health restrictions, and yet she still got the virus. Yeah, and that's something we've been trying to get updates on every day. And so, unfortunately for her, um, you know, it's kind of a wait and see thing. If she, if the ten days pass, uh, she could get out and maybe be able to compete. Probably not. They're trapped essentially in their hotel rooms, uh, a world away. Not really sure what's going on. I think that's the problem with these variants. You can still contract it even if you've been vaccinated. The other problem is, as long as a sizable portion of the population remains unvaccinated, these various variants are going to continue developing, health professionals say, and who knows what's coming down the pike next. One more reason that people should think about uh, to, to encourage them to get vaccinated. Lots of other stories to cover this week. A day after Kansas City officially ended its homeless hotel program, the tents are back. More than a dozen tents could be seen near a busy intersection in Westport earlier in the week. They have since been moved by the city. They've now been relocated near the Scout statue in Penn Valley Park. Kansas City earmarked nearly $3 million to house the homeless in hotel rooms. It was part of a 90-day program to remove the homeless from city streets until a more permanent fix could be found. But that's proving elusive. An effort to build a tiny homes village with hundreds of units for the homeless has been embroiled in controversy. Neighborhood groups lobbying the council not to locate the settlement in their communities. So if there was no solution on the way, why did the city end the hotel program in the first place, Sarah? Did they just simply run out of money? Not all of the hotels have even received their payments yet. And um, that, that's the question. Why, why did you end this? Um, there have been some really great success stories that have come out of this hotel initiative, but a lot of people 
you can apply for housing vouchers. You can get on a waiting list all you want, but that doesn't mean you're going to get housing. And so where do you go when this hotel initiative ends? It's back on the street. So that's what we're seeing now. But, but some people, though, were helped during that period of time, during that 90 days. They got jobs. They found homes. About 50 people got employed. The problem is a lot of these people were bussed out to, like, worlds of fun. And so they've gotten jobs. They, they were able to get jobs out there. Well, if they're not able to stay in their hotel, where do they stay? Maybe they're from back this way. How are they going to commute? There are a lot of problems uh, people are facing. Eric. There is one thing that I'd like to clarify. The police officers took them to the park. When they got to Penn Valley Park, they said that they had on Tuesday, they've got to be out of there by Wednesday because they can't be in that park either. So I don't know what's the solution to this, but the the hotel thing seemed to work to get them off the street, but it wasn't getting them jobs and getting them prepared, working on mental health issues, working on those issues that would maintain them in having a house. What happened well, though? Yeah, okay. sorry, please. A lot of people did get connected to mental health resources and things like that, but it's the stability factor. If you've got a stable place to go at the end of the day and now that's gone, are you gonna continue those mental health uh, you know, steps to, to get your mental health and all your issues in order? But if I got a real serious mental health problem, a 15-minute consultation is not going to solve my problem. You know, Nick, we're talking about this issue once again on this program for one very basic reason or two. It's very complicated, more complicated than it seems. And two, it's extraordinarily expensive to deal with this whole problem of homeless folks. We're going to be talking about this issue six months, 12 months down the road. The whole thing with the hotels was to buy the city a little bit of time to get this problem figured out. What the right. city doesn't have are the millions of dollars that are required to really adequately deal with a problem of this magnitude. Okay, Dave, you've said, though, on this program this, that money wasn't an issue anymore at City Hall. They have all of this money available because of the pandemic and the relief funding. Why was it so complicated to get this tiny homes village Past. Didn't that seem like an elegant solution? Providing well, small uh, units for the whole Yeah, no. Well, first of all, money, at least in the near term, is available, but in the long term, it's a problem. And the tiny village idea, tiny home village, uh, is very difficult politically because nobody wants that in their district and neighborhood groups are fighting it. I think we are learning, Nick, a couple of things, and Steve touched on them. First, this is a very labor-intensive problem. You almost have to go person by person and figure out what's the best thing for that person. Is it the city union mission, a tiny home? Is it a yeah. tent in the park? And then continue that for months and months and months the idea that there's one, you know, let's put them all on, in hotels. Oh, that's over. Okay, let's put them all in tiny homes. Well, that didn't really work. Let's put them all in tents. I think we're learning, and City Hall is learning, that that's never going to work. That, that A, it's expensive, and B, it just doesn't fit everybody in the homeless population. And other cities, by the way, are learning that lesson, too. So I don't think an early um, answer is possible. Sarah. Very well said. Well, yesterday, we had three measures in, in the Finance Committee, and all of them were held. The, the Verge Pallet Home was held. It's been held and referred uh, six times now. And then two new measures, those were held for another two weeks. City Council goes on vacation next week. I mean, people were really upset in that meeting, knowing that we're, you know, it, it's on hold again and again and again. Well, Eric, you can finish us off. Uh, one of the bigger conversations is affordable housing. And I think uh, one of the other networks this week or last week 
issued a report and that report stated that there's no place that you can live in the United States and get a housing if you make minimum wage. And if you made over minimum wage, there's only 7% of the cities in the United States that you could live in. That's something that needs to come to the conversation at, as a discussion as well. What is affordable housing and how can you build it without getting money? Lastly, the pallet home situation is kind of complex in that you, you don't have showers in there, you don't have restrooms in there, so they have to put uh, porta potties outside for people to use. A lot of city council members don't agree with that as solving a problem. That just gets them out of the rain. But how could they get up and go to work the next day without taking a shower or being able to wash their face and brush their teeth? So that's that's got a lot of development to do as well. Affordable housing is one issue, of course. Health care, a big issue in our metro, too. We want to update you on a couple of important legal battles that have huge implications in our area. As we record this program this half hour, we are waiting on a ruling from the Missouri Supreme Court on the legal spat over Medicaid expansion. The state's highest court heard oral arguments in the case last week, and some court watchers say a quick decision may be on the way. Last month, a judge ruled that Missouri's voter-approved Medicaid expansion measure was unconstitutional because the ballot question didn't include a funding mechanism to pay for it, leaving uh, around 270,000 Missourians in limbo. So what happens, Sarah, if the Supreme Court agrees that the ballot measure is unconstitutional? Are petitioners are going to have to collect more signatures again and put it back on the ballot perhaps next year? That's what people are wondering. Um, I, I don't know that uh, the state's really ever been in this position that many times. And so it, we're, just, we're waiting on the state to decide. Uh, it, it could come back in, uh, in, in a week. It could come back in a few weeks. We're just not sure. Well, what happens, though, if the su Supreme Court uh, actually changes its decision from the lower court and says, no, this is constitutional, but the state of Missouri says it has no money and certainly now is giving a lot of that money to these vaccine incentives, Steve. Well, keep in mind, Nick, a good question, but keep in mind that the state of Missouri had money a few months ago when Governor Parson proposed his budget for this year. He included Medicaid expansion in his initial budget, $130 million out of the state general fund. So you have to assume that there's a way to get this done, if, even if it's another year down the road next uh, January when the governor proposes his next budget, Nick. There's a way to get this done. So, but isn't that going to require another special session yet again, uh, Dave? It might. I mean, if they want to keep the books uh, relatively clean, Nick, the legislature might be called back. But if the court rules in, in favor of the plaintiffs here, the order will be pretty simple. It will simply uh, t tell the governor, you must sign up these people for Medicaid. That's it. You did, these people are now, this population is now eligible. And one of the arguments the plaintiffs have made is that you have no idea how much that's going to cost. It depends on how many people sign up, how many people use it or don't use it. Uh, the governor has the constitutional authority to withhold spending on a line item basis. He does it all the time, as you know. Uh, to make uh, to make payments to other parts uh, of the state budget. So there is money to do this. The mechanism is pretty easily seen. Uh, and, and and the order will be pretty simple. 275,000 people eligible. You have to sign them up if they apply, period, full stop. Nick, the governor's own budget people acknowledged in January they didn't have to cut anything else in the budget in order to fund Medicaid expansion. So again, there's a path forward here 
if the governor would be ordered to take it. As we're speaking about lawsuits, by the way, don't expect a swift ruling in that clash between Kansas City and the Board of Police Commissioners over police funding. A Jackson County judge has just set the timeline for hearing that case. That courtroom showdown won't happen now until September 1st. So there's not going to be any resolution to this fact for quite some time yet, Dave? That's correct. And, uh, you know, the hearing is September 1st. Patrick Campbell is the judge. It might take three to four weeks at best for him to reach a decision. On this case, there will be an opportunity to file other briefs and, and other paperwork with the court. And then almost certainly the losing side will appeal. And that will take weeks, if not months. That means that a legal uh, resolution of this dispute might not come until close to the end of the year. By the way, last week, Eric, when we had our health directors on the program, you recall that we had all of the top business and civic groups in Kansas City, the Chamber of Commerce and the Civic Council, coming forward and now providing recommendations uh, for how this should go with police funding. And one of those recommendations is don't have a lawsuit. Uh, let's talk with one another, have dialogue with one another. Did that happen? No. <laughs> and I think it's, it's beyond that point. I think if they were going to come up with that recommendation, it should have been uh, months before the uh, final conversation about what to do. But that's not getting ready to happen. But I did think that their uh, the chamber and civic council, I think their solution plans omitted a couple of things. And one was local control. And number two was whether or not Chief Smith should remain as chief of police. But they kind of sidestepped that during the interview session that I had with them, saying that they wanted something that was short term. Those but, things yeah, are short but, term. But they did say, Dave, that they were going to spend, they'd spent several months tackling this issue, and yet um, they were still studying those uh, questions they omitted, including the yeah, police chief and local is, funding. It, it's hard. This is hard stuff. I've been writing about local control for a mere 40 years. So, I mean, you know, this issue has been before Kansas City before. Let me point out a couple of things. Mayor Lucas did tell me that there have been some low-level discussions about a settlement. That doesn't seem likely. The other thing to keep in mind is, if this case is not finally decided until November or December, that's precisely the time the city will enter its new budget discussions, because it passes a budget in March of 2022. If the city loses the case, then you can almost be certain that the new budget for the next year will restrict the police to just 20% of the general fund, and that will be a real battle that will stay clear of the courts. It'll be much more about politics. While we focus on things like police funding, of course, many people are really anxious to know what is actually happening with violent crime. How are we solving crimes? We're coming up, by the way, to the second anniversary of the fatal first Friday shooting in the crossroads. Remember that? 25-year-old uh, Erin Langefer of Overland Park was killed by a stray bullet while she waited at the food tracks this week. Her killer was sentenced to 18 years in prison. But that was supposed to be a changing point for our community when we finally got serious about crime in Kansas City. Sarah, did we just simply forget about it and move on? Uh, it seems that way. Um, we hear about these terrible, horrific uh, incidents almost almost every day, every week. But there, there's still a fight as to who gets a gun, who should have a gun, and should we limit guns at all? And I, and I think we've never, we have not made any steps in that direction. We can say all we want. We need conflict resolution, and hopefully that is starting at when your children. And I think that's maybe how we would see some progress. Steve. 
Yeah, it, it, it didn't have any impact, Nick. Uh, this community remains stalled on the whole idea of dealing with violent crime, even her tragic death and so many others. They're sort of washing away and we sort of muddle forward. Now, Kansas is one of only three states in the country that has yet to legalize marijuana in any form. Even if you're a, a Kansan with a chronic medical condition, it's illegal to use marijuana in any way. So it's interesting. Missouri this week is moving forward with plans to legalize pot even further. Petitioners have begun the process to place recreational marijuana on the ballot next year. Sarah, I find this really interesting because haven't we only heard about problems with the medical marijuana program they currently have in Missouri, about who got those licenses, one lawsuit after another? Yeah, the market was really tight. And you look over at a place like Oklahoma, they, I mean, it's booming with dispensaries. And so I think not only do people want recreational cannabis here in Missouri, but they wanted a more open market. And so some of these petitions are uh, hoping to achieve that and not uh, enact kind of those caps on licenses that we saw with the medicinal process. I saw in an editorial this week, Dave Helling, you did not think it was a slam dunk that the editorial board, though, would approve recreational marijuana. A measure on the ballot? Well, I will have to see the language. I wrote that editorial. We'd like to see the language, of course, before you endorse anything. Uh, you know, that may be subject to change. The legislature might come up with different regulations. But, but let's be clear. Just like they did on riverboat gaming, Missouri set up a scheme around medical marijuana that restricts competition. Just full stop. It protects the license holders, prohibits other people from selling marijuana or being dispensaries or even growing the material for, for widespread sale. Missouri is fond of talking about the free market and then not following it. And that's why uh, primarily the folks behind recreational marijuana are going to the voters because they want dispensaries to be open across the state and not just limited uh, as it is now for medical marijuana. Is this going to push Kansas, though, to do at least something at this point, <coughs> Steve? Oh, you're shaking your head no. All right. No, Missouri has a, a process for citizens to petition their government to make changes. Kansas doesn't have anything remotely similar to that, Nick. I don't see it happening in Kansas for a long time to come. Well, there are three words you see peppered in a lot of news stories around our metro these days. They are critical race theory. A state lawmaker in Kansas is trying to ban it, being taught in schools. This week, Missouri held a hearing at the Capitol on the matter, though there were complaints about who got to testify. Not one black educator, black parent, or black student got a chance to speak. What we see in our school systems today is that we are pitting black kids against white kids. So what exactly is critical race theory? We turn to John Greenberg of PolitiFact for a 20-second answer. Critical race theory took shape in the 1980s when black legal scholars asked why the lives of so many people of color hadn't changed despite all the civil rights laws and the court rulings in the decades before. Their answer? Racist impacts are woven into laws and practices and show up in how schools are funded, who goes to prison, the sort of home loans people are offered, and other facets of life, large and small. But should we be teaching that to our kids? It's led to some fiery school board meetings on both sides of state line. It's basically white shaming. And that, that's basically a racist viewpoint. To me, this is child abuse. Just because I do not want critical race theory taught to my children in school does not mean that I'm a racist, damn it. 
a snapshot of views from the Rockland School District in Eureka, Missouri, given such huge issues still unresolved in our schools, from whether to mask for vaccinations or to how to tackle a loss of learning brought on by online learning over the last year. Why is this getting so much attention, Eric Wesson? Because it, it broadens the conversation and it broadens the scope, and a lot of people don't want to broaden that scope. You know, when you're in, in school, basically you learn about black people being slaves. There's a little bit of sprinkling of Martin Luther King in there for Black History Month. But then after that, it goes back to uh, Columbus discovered an occupied land. And so uh, people want to broaden that conversation and people are just resistant of that uh, broadening of that conversation. Now, the governor of Missouri this week saying, you know, this shouldn't be taught in schools. But, I mean, this is really getting resonance in the same way that the defund the police uh, issue is getting across the country, Dave. Yes, and, and the reality is that race is at the bottom of all of it. You know, this concern after George Floyd that the United States somehow was having a reassessment of its relationship with the black community primarily has upset a lot of people. And those people vote and Republican politicians are prepared to appeal to their emotions by criticizing something that is very difficult to define, isn't really being taught in our schools, uh, and yet is emotional enough to get people angry. It's really unfortunate because I think if everyone of good faith could get into a room, we could figure out a way to be more inclusive in the things we teach our kids uh, without uh, triggering the so-called critical race theory reaction. Nick, to Dave's point, it's another wedge issue, just like abortion has been a wedge issue, just like gay rights has been. Common Core was the same thing. Common Core was some time ago, right, Steve? Common core, evolution. You know, Remember the teaching of evolution was a big deal? Absolutely. And that's, you know, this is a tough topic. Uh, like proponents think it needs to be taught to help people understand the, the incredible impact of racism in America. But as Eric points out, it's a tough conversation to have and people are afraid of it. Sarah? You know, I think the uh, an, arg an argument that I've heard is, you know, when you when you tell a child something, they're they're not biased, they're not uh, exposed to different things like adults are. They're not jaded like adults are. If you teach, if you tell somebody a, a child that something happened in our history, they'll probably say, "Oh, well, that's that's wrong." Well, and then maybe that's the point to 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 show them that these things happen and to make a better future. That's another argument that I've heard. Before we leave this week, last week Kansas City marked the 40th anniversary of the Hyatt Hotel disaster. This week we mark another tragic anniversary. Three years ago on this program, the top story was of an unfathomable disaster in Branson as a duck boat capsizes, killing 17 people on Table Rock Lake. Now criminal charges have been filed against three men, including the boat's captain. And just as remarkably, there's news that another company is ready to relaunch the duck boats in Branson. Eric Wesson, you had just ridden the duck boats in Branson when the disaster happened and appeared on this program. Now that we have this company wanting to bring them back, would you ride them? No. No, I'm through with the duck boats. <laughs> duck boats, geese boats, whatever boats. No, there's still, there's still a lot of safety issues with that. And uh, no, I wouldn't be getting on another one of those. But wasn't there uh, lots of state inquiries, congressional inquiries on this? And didn't that improve that entire industry? So perhaps this is a much safer place to be, a much safer attraction now, Dave. Well, maybe. I mean, there were some uh, changes at the margins, and uh, I'm sure the new owners and their insurance companies, to be sure, 
will insist on safety measures that were clearly not in place when the duck boat tragedy took place. But Nick, this story is, is timeless in our area. Everyone thinks that, re that regulations are bad, that they hurt us until there's a tragedy. Same thing at Schlitterbond. There's a, an assumption that somehow the regulatory environment will, will prevent things like this, and it just isn't the case. And so uh, Eric's skepticism is, uh, I'm sure, more common than not and understandable to be sure. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed. Our thanks to this week's news reviewers from 41 News, Sarah Plake, from The Call, Eric Wesson, from The Star, Dave Helling, and keeping you up to date weekdays at 9 on KCURFM, Steve Kraske. Next week, we dissect the race for mayor in Overland Park and David Alvey's fight for another four years as mayor of Wyandotte County. Join us then. I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Keep calm and carry on.